You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor here at Cornerstone. Today, I'm joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell, and together we are studying through and talking about the Apostles' Creed. One thing that we've loved about these podcast conversations is that we want our listeners to be a part of them. So as you listen and as you do your own study on your own time, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, we would love to hear them. We'd love to be able to respond to some of them. So if you would text your comments to 817-809-3040, we'll take the comments that we think are most applicable to our listeners and have a chance to really involve and engage you as a listener in these Cornerstone conversations. So Bobby, it's been a couple of weeks since we've met to do a podcast and that's purposeful. And I've had a lot of people ask me, hey, when are you guys going to do the podcast? And honestly, it didn't feel right to jump in without having completed some of the sermons that you've done because they've all been very much aligned together. And so as you've been doing the sermons, which are available on our website and also on our podcast at cbc.family slash media, you've been going over some of the really I don't want to say controversial, but really tricky parts of the Apostles' Creed, the parts that maybe we see the most theological difference from one sect of Christianity to the next. I wonder what your thoughts are with this. Yeah, well, you know, the first part of the Apostles' Creed, let's just call it the God section, the God the Father section. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then there's a very strong Jesus section Mm -hmm. or two paragraphs about Jesus And then the last paragraph will transition down to the Holy Spirit and matters of the church and other things. But that Jesus section in the middle is where we've been spending a lot of time. Yeah. And the Apostles' Creed series has helped so many maybe reconnect with what they believe or clarify some things that they were confused about. Yeah. We assume that when we attend church, all the people in the room believe exactly what we believe. And it's not a safe assumption in the modern church. And honestly, the further that I get into my own personal ministry, I'm 31 years old, I'm about to be 32. I've been in professional ministry for 11 years now. And even in just in those 11 years, I've seen even more how people you would expect to be aligned in every area have some really you know significant differences and things that you think are really important, someone else might think are just not important and vice versa. And I've found the further that we go along with this and the further that I get into my own ministry, I learn, oh, we have a lot of nuanced differences. Yeah. Well, you also, you grew up in ministry, that decade of ministry that you're referring to, you spent in a mid-sized church. Yeah. So when you're pastoring, let's say three, four, five hundred, up to 600 people, Mm -hmm. there is not going to be uniformity on every facet of theological belief. Yeah nor does there have to be. Right. And I know pastors are not supposed to say this out loud, but we're kind of breaking a lot of norms here with what (laughs) we're really dealing with. We want to say this out loud. You know, if you have a church of 50 people, maybe there is uniformity. Mm -hmm. When you get a church of hundreds of people and certainly into thousands of people, there's not going to be conformity on every aspect of every possible position theologically. And that's okay. Yeah. It harkens back to our study through Corinthians when we did the Zero Corinthians series, both in person here at Cornerstone and also on the podcast. Paul makes such a point to say, you know, you guys feel like you're aligned with Apollos. You guys feel like you're aligned with me. Everyone's splitting Somebody's hairs over, with Peter. over yeah. things that just don't matter. Just align over the gospel. You have more union in that than you do in the differences that you think you have. And so you in have your spoken it beautifully. We have to have conformity on the gospel. Right. That's a non-negotiable. Yeah. Much the way we approach membership here at Cornerstone, we don't ask you to believe with 10 pages of articles of faith. Which sounds like sarcasm. That sounds like a joke right now, but that is the norm, especially in, let's say, a Baptist church. Well, and we can give a very obvious one that we're going to deal with this morning. The standard articles of faith for any Baptist church is called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Mm -hmm. That is the Southern Baptist, which let's just use them because they represent what is normative in the world of Baptists. Right. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is essentially the dogma. It's the articles of faith that if you're a Baptist, this is what you believe. For example, Article 10. We take exception at Cornerstone to Article 10 in particular 
Article 10 is labeled last things. Mm -hmm. And Article 10 of the Baptist faith and message says, we die, we fly away to heaven to live for eternity in heaven with Jesus. And that is not the story the Bible's telling. No. And so I just want to use that as an example of we wouldn't in our position, agree with Southern Baptists on every facet of then eschatology. So it's eschatology not, being the study of, of the things that come the end yeah. times. Yeah. So we certainly as a church don't ask our membership to agree on every facet of theology. What we do ask our members to agree on are nine essential beliefs that unite us much in the way Paul said to the church of Corinth, you have to be united around the gospel. Some of these other things are just second and third tier issues that nobody's going to solve. Yeah. Listen, there are some things I just want to be as transparent in our language as we can be with our listeners. There are some things about what happens after you close your eyes in death. I want to call this the intermediate state. You leave the body and you are a disembodied spirit flying to be with the Lord. Listen, I've already run out of what I can say. Yeah. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And Paul said it's far better. You can't expound much beyond that because we can debate and can speculate and hypothesize, but you have no fact Yeah, right. much beyond that. And that's just one example of many that deal with what happens near the end, especially if you're trying to recreate an eschatological calendar. Yeah. I think this will happen and then this will happen and then this will happen and then seven years this will happen and then 1,000 years this will happen. Yeah. There's no way you can find agreement on that. Right. You know, I'm really happy that you brought up the timetable idea because there's three major views of end times and it all kind of circles around millennialism. It's over this thousand year period. This right? is really Sunday sermon that you're coming to right now. Okay. We're going to deal with So this I don't want to get too far ahead of it, but can you just tell me what the three major camps are? Yeah. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And the awe being the negative. It negates saying that we don't agree with any of the millennialism. Mm -hmm. So millennialism is the teaching that there will be a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. Okay. okay? That he's here visibly, physically reigning for 1000 years and then something else happens. Okay. That's millennialism. And so the belief in a millennial, a literal 1000 year reign where Christ is present upon the earth, ruling this earth. Now, millennialism is taken from six verses in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, mm -hmm. verses one to six, is the only place in the Bible that speaks of a thousand year kingdom. Okay. Now I want to pause right huh. there because I already pretty much destroyed that Sunday and will again this Sunday that the book of Revelation has not been read correctly. So anyway, millennialism now divides itself into different camps. So there's the group that says, yes, we believe in a thousand year reign. Mm -hmm. There's another group that says, no, we don't believe the way you're describing this. Why cap it at a thousand? Yeah. And why have a reign of Christ, unleash Satan, have another war, and then start the new heaven and new earth, eternal kingdom. When Christ comes to earth to rule and reign, isn't that the new heaven and new earth, eternal kingdom that the Bible says? It's a lot fewer moving parts in amillennialism, but within millennialism, premillennialism and postmillennialism, there are varieties on those <laughs> as well. In other words, yeah. like premillennialism has several, at least three flavors. Okay. Pre-tribulation, premillennialism, mid-tribulation, premillennialism, and post-tribulation, premillennialism. Yeah, it gets crazy confusing. Yeah, I, I'm just shaking my head over here because... Okay, it's theological word games, but I mean, it's real because people have Bible verses they appeal to to say, no, this is why it happens like this. Yeah. No, this is why it happens like this. And I think what clears up for me 99% of this is how you read the book of Revelation because it's the only place this thousand year millennialism is referred to. Yeah. And it comes from a very literal reading of Revelation. Now, I just said everything right there. Right. Is Revelation meant to be read literally when you and I can talk about that more in a minute? Yeah. But if you say yes, well, then you're going to be pre or post millennial. If you say no, I don't think so, then you're going to be millennial, mm -hmm. you're going to have a different scheme for how the end days, end times play out and the coming kingdom of Christ plays out. Yeah. And that's really all we're talking about is how do you think things end? What is the end times? You know, if you had to lay out 
this is going to happen and this is going to happen and then, oh, everything's good. You know, we're talking about what is your eschatological view? How do you think it's going to play out? Yeah. And these labels are important because it does affect how you live. And this is a theme I keep coming back to in the live services. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to keep saying this at least for a few more weeks, what you believe theologically, what you believe about how the world comes to its conclusion mm -hmm. affects how you live right now. And that's why it's important. Absolutely. So before everybody throws their hands up and says, oh, amillennial, premillennial, pre-trib, post, oh, it's just too much. I don't even want to talk about it. You need to talk about it at least at a high level so that you understand how this affects Monday morning. Exactly. You know, and one thing that a lot of people don't understand the amount of conversations that go into sermon preparation every single week. One thing that we talk a lot about is how there's some people who are much smarter than either you or me who believe very securely in one of these camps. And so we don't want to be, you know, just over the top against any of these camps. People come to these understandings reading the same Bible that we do. And I think because of that, it's very naive of anyone to say that they know with 100% certainty how the end of the world is going to look. That's a great point. It just feels very naive to me to say, because I'm not as smart as some of these incredible scholars, and I'm not as learned or read up as any of these people who feel very firmly in a camp that I'm not in. So let's say it in a way for our listeners to kind of internalize this. Dear listener, however you have laid out the end times in your heart, there's somebody who disagrees with you. Absolutely. And that somebody is a sincere follower of Jesus Christ that yeah. disagrees with you. Yeah. And they read their Bible and they give to missions and they love the Lord and they're trying their best to raise their family to be followers of Christ. These are our brothers and sisters and we see differently yeah. how the end plays out. And so even though I don't preach it in an ambiguous manner, yeah. you come away knowing what our position is. And we come to that position with a lot of reason and with a lot of scriptural sure. backing. So but, I don't want to never yeah. want to give the impression that people who disagree with us eschatologically are bad people, are inferior people, yeah. are not our friends, that they are not loved by us. I want to keep saying this also. This is a family discussion. Exactly. This is like you getting together with your family over a beautiful turkey and talking about, you know, who's the best football team or any other thing that a family would love to just take a position on and debate out. And right. that rivalry and that sparring within that family context is a lot of fun and it challenges us. And if an observer were to watch your family from a distance through the window, they would say, oh, it looks like World War Three. They're pointing fingers <laughs> and they're passionate talking in there. Yeah. And they may think you're fighting. You're not fighting. You're, somebody loves the Cowboys and somebody loves the Eagles, you know? Yeah. Not that anybody could love the Eagles, but anyway, <laughs> but it's a family argument. It's yeah, a family exactly. discussion. We don't hate each other. We're just passionate about the way we see it. And this goes back to the earlier statement that we made. This is why we said there are some things that are non-negotiable. Correct. And other things that we can agree to disagree on. Listen, we can worship together, memorize scripture together, raise our families Make together, disciples sit together. side by side together for 20 years in the church, do mission trips together. And we won't have to iron out all of these things and come to complete agreement on them. Yeah. Because here's the big thing now. Let's go back to where we started. The middle paragraphs are about Jesus Christ. Exactly. And it's making big, broad, bold claims about who Jesus is. You know, Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, rose again the third. These are big statements. Yeah. We believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, then you come down to the statement that we have spent and will spend three or four weeks dealing with in the congregation setting, and that's the statement, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Yeah. So when you say, we believe that he will come, you're saying, we believe in a second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what's really launched three weeks of discussions at Cornerstone. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the return of Christ. So are you saying rapture? And our answer is <laughs> no, not necessarily. not necessarily. Are you saying millennial kingdom? No, not necessarily. We want to align with what the apostles taught. We do believe he's going to return. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the point of unity. Regardless of what your eschatological view is, we believe that everybody gathered for worship on a Sunday at Cornerstone could all agree in unity on this statement. We all believe he's going to return. 
He is. And that's an emphatic teaching of both the New and Old Testaments. Right. And the apostles did not waver on that. Can I give you a fun fact about the second coming? This is really interesting to me. So I'm a worship pastor. I'm in music constantly. Joy to the World is actually written as a second coming anthem. Not a Christmas and song. And not a Christmas song. So Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king now. Let every heart prepare her. So not he came to a manger. Sing. Right. It says nothing about the Christmas story. It's all about the second coming of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Well, we need to sing that one Sunday then. We should. No, I mean... One Sunday long before we get yeah, to Christmas. Yeah. Be very appropriate for a... It'd be an interesting side note. Yeah. But anyway, one thing that I think is really impactful that you mentioned, I think a couple of weeks ago, you talked about the way that we read the Bible hasn't necessarily been fair to the way that the Bible was written, that no one really taught us how to read the Bible. And I think that's yeah. especially true when we get to these books like Revelation, where it's written in apocalyptic genre. And it's done with very specific intentions in mind. And we've completely missed it, yeah. or at least I did. I can speak yeah. to myself right now. I've missed the point on Revelation for years. We all did. Yeah. Because the way that I was taught to read the Bible, it hasn't been fair to the way that the text was written. Yeah, so let's talk about that for just a minute. Again, I don't want it to sound like we're beating up on our tradition. We are a little bit, but in a very loving way. Here's what our tradition was really great at. They told us to read the Bible. They mm -hmm. put Bibles in our hands. We had children's Bibles, yeah. little kids' Bibles, illustrated Bibles. I remember comic book looking kind of Bibles filled with pictures. Right. I get questions all the time. I received a question just three or four weeks ago. Hey, my son is a big boy now. He's in elementary and he no longer needs a little kitty kitty bible yeah pastor give me a suggestion on which bible to get him you know that kind of thing this is what our tradition is great at we had bibles in our hands oh yeah we can't remember a time in our life when we didn't own a bible a paper copy of the bible specifically we used to get them for birthday presents christmas presents yeah graduation gifts, everything yeah bibles were given out by our tradition we were encouraged to read the bible mm -hmm. and that is commendable as you said already, what we were not taught was how to read the Bible. Right. And this is a major failing of the church now. And because we were not taught how to read the Bible, it led to a lot of theological error and it led to confusion of our people. Listen, we have people every week who listen to these podcasts who are being shocked by some of the statements we're saying that the Bible is not telling a story that you die, fly away and live for eternity in heaven with Jesus. Yeah. And they're shocked by those statements. But that's just not the story the Bible's telling. The Bible's telling a story of God making humans as living images of himself. And he put them in a material world where heaven and earth were united. Mm -hmm. They rebelled against their creator. They lost their divine vocation. And now the planet is under a curse and the people are fallen sinners subject to death. Now the whole thing has to be redeemed. It has to be renewed. And so the Bible's telling this story of a king and his kingdom and how he's going to send a king to make it all right. The earth gets a renewal. The broken icons get a resurrection to be incorruptible bodies like they were designed to be from the beginning. Yeah. Death was never the plan. Disembodied spirits were never the plan. Use some real life examples. We've had some church members pass recently. They are disembodied now. Mm -hmm. We'll lay their bodies to rest whether through the cremation process or embalming and burial, they are not there. They mm. left their body at the moment of death and the spirit, some people say the soul, however you want to say that, yeah. that part of you, that's you living in that body, goes to be with the Lord, Paul said. You can take comfort that your loved ones are with the Lord. Yeah. But they're in a state, an intermediary state, that is not desirable. It is not the goal. It is not what you were created for. You were not created to be a spirit outside of your body. You yeah. were made to be an embodied spirit, mm -hmm. a living soul. And so you are made from the earth, Adam, for the earth, to rule over the earth as God's living images. You were not made to sail away to heaven to live for eternity with Jesus. Jesus according to what the scriptures say, is not going to live in eternity out there somewhere. He's coming down to take control of this earth and to rule and reign planet earth. Yeah. And ultimately, the Bible speaks continuously of a renewed heaven and earth where wolf and lamb lay down together, where child can play with the snake. I mean, all of these kind of metaphors, are right. being, this yep. incredible poetic language where the desert will blossom like a rose again. 
and the world will be fixed and the people will be fixed and there will be no sin, no death, no sickness. That's the utopia that we have always longed for. And that's what God is going to renew planet Earth to be. So, no, we're not in eternity in heaven. We are here. The reason we came to those conclusions is we weren't really taught how to read the Bible. Yeah. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. If you were to take the Bible and uncouple those 66 books, unbind them, yeah. and then go into a library and put those 66 books on their appropriate shelves. Oh, they'd be all over the building. Well, gosh, there would be biography section. This is nonfiction. Yeah. These are real stories. Goes in the biography section, there'd Matthew, a, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, there'd be a poetry section. We put Psalms in there. There'd be kind of a Wisdom. documentation, numbers, you know. Okay, so this is history. like history. Yeah. This is your time, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, right. the book of Joshua. It's all over the place. Right. So you have different genres of literature bound together in one book. But we were not taught, pay attention to which book you're in. We were taught the Bible is just one book. Mm hmm. Therefore, just start reading. The problem is, if you don't read with genre in mind, you'll read poetry, which is intentionally symbolic, yeah. and you'll read it literally, and then it'll mess your theology up. Exactly. You'll read the book of Revelation, which is a letter written to the seven churches of Asia, but after chapter three, it switches to apocalyptic style. Mm -hmm. So within this letter, this prophetic letter, chapters about four to 21, you know, is written in an apocalyptic style, which is an ancient Jewish style of writing. Yeah. And it's tricky because we don't have an immediate comparison. And not in the English language. You know, you say, okay, we'll read Psalms and Proverbs as though they're a collection of, you know, songs and poetry. We understand that reference. It we, makes sense to correct. us. You say, oh, read it like it's a letter. Okay, I get it. And we have an immediate connection. But you say, read it like it's apocalyptic writing. Okay, apocalyptic writing is Daniel. It's Ezekiel. Yeah. It's highly symbolic. And I think I gave like seven, eight, nine characteristics Sunday morning right. about what apocalyptic is like. But let's just characterize it this way. It's resistance literature mm -hmm. to resist the oppressive system, socioeconomic system, political system, religious, resist the system, endure, don't get discouraged. It's going to be okay. And the writing is filled with symbols and numbers and word pictures that are not to be taken literally, mm -hmm. much like poetry. It expresses some truth. The symbols are not literal. They may refer to literal things. Yeah. And that's what gets a little tricky, like the thousand years we're dealing with. There is going to be a reign of Christ. Yeah. He does sit as King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling. What you have to decide is, is it literally a thousand years? Is he ruling from heaven or is he ruling on earth? And not only that, if you take that kind of reading, what other elements of literal well, within understanding those do you have to have? Within those same six verses, Satan is bound in the same six verses. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what kind of chain is that? Yeah. Did it come from Home Depot, Lowe's, or was it manufactured by a special blacksmith in heaven? What type of metal was it made out of? There's a key mentioned. That means there's a lock. Yeah. Is that slage, kiwi, master lock? <laughs> and you're like, well, that's ridiculous for you to talk that way. No, that's what literal interpretation so, exactly. means. Yeah. You can't interpret 1,000 as a literal number. Without interpreting the rest of it, <laughs> exactly. literally. Yeah. Exactly. And so, again, Revelation gets pretty wild if you read it all 100% literally. That is correct. Well, you just could not read it literally. And we can recommend a lot of books. If our listeners want to reach out to us, we can recommend a lot of books on how to read the Bible. I think one of the big things that's come out of this end times discussion is that the church, the professional staff has really sat and watched how our people responded to these discussions on the end times and realized we are broken as a church, and I'm assuming all churches are. But particularly broken in our understanding of this. Of how to read the Bible. Yeah. So we immediately said we need to propose several solutions to our people. And we mentioned four of them right out of the gate a couple of weeks ago. And we said, start participating in modules that teach how to read the Bible. So probably later this fall, but certainly by next spring, we intend to do a very large module with textbook, workbook that is a really a Bible university course. Yeah, collegiate level course that says, yeah, exactly. if you had come to your pastor and said, I surrender my life to vocational ministry and you went off to a reasonable university, this is what they would teach you about how to read the Bible. So we have their textbook. 
Yeah. It's one of three or four books that we read here. We have many others. You and I just recently led a six-week module with 15 of our young leaders here. Yeah, it's like a mentorship group where we realized, well, these people have particular potential in eventually leading the church, whether professionally or bivocationally, or even as a lay person, these young people have a real opportunity here to be mentored. And the first thing that we realize is let's, we need to make sure you. that they know how to read, how the, to Bible. read the Bible. Before exactly. we get into any you know deep theological matters, we have to make sure that they're approaching the scripture properly and responsibly. Yeah. So at Cornerstone, we'll be offering more modules and opportunities for people to come to classes that just teach the different genres, how to find the big idea, how to interpret what you're reading correctly. We think that's a big first step. Yeah. Another thing we recommended to our congregation was to get a particular Bible reading app. Okay. And this is actually, you introduced this to me, which is funny because usually I'm the I'm one the in, non-technology I, I'm introducing person. all the apps to you, yeah. but you introduced this app to me. It's called Read Scripture and it ties along with the content from the Bible Project, which is an incredible organization that puts out really well done slick and very theologically rich material to help you right. study and understand scripture. And what it does is it gives you a Bible reading plan and couples it with content from the Bible project, right. like videos and devotionals. And it's a really slick way to study the Bible and stay accountable to a process and habit of it. A parent reached out to me not long ago, a few weeks ago too, and it was asking me about reading the Bible with her son. And this is what I recommended. Yeah, I said more important than the paper Bible or the version or whatever is that you would do it. I mean, the big thing, let's all agree, we're reading the Bible to understand something. We're not reading it to go through a religious exercise, Mm -hmm. a ritual. We're supposed to come away with something. Right. And so the key is understanding so that you can come away with something. And so I told her, read the Bible with your son using this app. Because it'll say, watch the video. Maybe it explains creation. Then it says, okay, now read these chapters about creation. Yeah. We are a very visual five, 10 minute clip type society now. Yeah. Short attention spans make it visual for us. And this app helps you do that. So I would highly recommend this. And now, this and the other things we're going to talk about, if you're a non cornerstone person listening to our podcasts and They're being listened to in Nepal and India and all around the world and all over the Metroplex and other churches and whatever people are listening to these podcasts. We would recommend to you that you get your people on this Bible reading plan. That's an incredible resource. Next, we would say whether you're a Cornerstone member or a pastor of another church or anywhere in the world where you have an internet connection, you need to watch videos from the Bible Project. Yeah. The Bible Project, their goal is to make the Bible understandable. And they do a fantastic job. If you're listening from another church right now, you're a pastor or a leader in another church, and maybe you tune in to find some ideas or even controversy. I don't know why you would listen, but for many different reasons, yeah. you might be listening to see what's going on. We would say to you, if your staff doesn't have robust theological discussions, you need to at least schedule 15 minutes a week, if not a day, when you guys can come together around a conference table, put on a Bible project video and say, hey, let's just start the day with this. Yeah, You're going to hear things you've never heard before. You're going to hear things you may not agree with. You're going to hear things that'll challenge your theological positions. And if you find that, don't say we're right and Bible project is wrong. You go dig into that because what you're going to discover is they're probably not wrong. Right. They're probably not wrong. And you need to rethink some of your theological positions. So we recommend that to all of our members. And I would say, if you're going to start with Bible project videos, start with their series on how to read the Bible, where they talk about the different styles of literature in the Bible and how to read those different styles. It'll just be completely eye-opening and revolutionary to you. This is stuff that ought to be showed at the freshman level, Bible college level, for everybody coming in to make sure everybody knows how to read the Bible. And then the fourth thing we tell our people is, in order to read the Bible correctly, make sure you're part of a discipleship group. A D group, what it does for you is it puts you in community with one or more people. And so it prevents you from interpreting scripture in isolation. Which is really important. Yeah, because in isolation is where you will you come up with crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I illustrated this for our congregation, that if you didn't know how to read the Bible and somebody gave you a Bible and said, here, just read this. In the opening chapters of the Bible, the good guys are committing genocide, killing men, women, and children of another nation. You see people taking multiple wives. Some women are gifted. Some marriages are arranged. Some are taken by force. 
You're seeing people stoned for all manner, I mean, capital punishment for all manner of sexual sins, not just homosexuality, adultery, stoning of men and women. You're seeing some brutality. When you get to the book of Judges, the wheels come off the bus. There are some shocking passages in the Bible. And what I'm saying is they're there. They're there for a reason. They're there for some instructive purpose. But if you let someone read those in isolation without somebody to talk it out with, you may come to all kinds of crazy ideas. I remember Susan led a woman to Christ, brilliant woman, some woman of science, a head nurse at one of our hospitals here in the community. And we started discipling her the week after she got saved. And we made the mistake of saying, here's the Bible, go read it. Yeah. And we didn't have that, let's discuss what you're reading moment every week. We just started her reading. And then we started discipling her on a different topic. And that was a problem because she came back to us after a couple of weeks and said, okay, I'm through Genesis now. So polygamy is okay. <laughs> Christianity promotes polygamy and you would align with the Mormons on it's okay to have multiple wives. And Susan and I looked at her and we're like, where did you get this idea? She's like, well, I just started reading from the beginning. Exactly what she told us. She said, I started reading the Bible from the beginning. I see they've got multiple wives. I don't see where it's condemned anywhere. This must be God's thumbs up. It must be okay then. This is what Christianity promotes. And little moments like that over 30 years is what lead us to preach sermons like this, where we know we've not taught people to read the Bible because we've not been taught ourselves. And it can lead to incredible error theologically. So you need to be in community. And this is why a discipleship group is important. That's why it matters. We come with someone who... If you're in a discipleship group, you've got a mentor there who's more spiritually mature than you. And you can say, hey, so here's what I read. Let's talk about this. Help help me parse this out. That's correct. And the discipleship group helps you do that. So anyway, that's the recommendations we gave our church. And then from there, we talked about we'll address Revelation and we'll address some of these difficult passages. When it comes to eschatology, there's really two big issues the way I see it. There's 1 Thessalonians 4, which deals with the rapture. Which actually a text question came in about this passage in particular. So I'm really interested. I know our listeners will be interested in what you have to say about this one too. Actually, I got a private question in the foyer. One was emailed to you, came in a couple of different varieties. They're all on this topic. But the two big issues are the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and the thousand represented in Revelation chapter 21 mm-hmm. 6. So let's deal with the Revelation passage in the coming week. Okay. So we dealt a week ago with the First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 passage, which is, let's call it the rapture passage. Does the Bible teach a rapture that we're going to fly away to heaven to live with the Lord forever? And I'll read the way the questions were instructed to us. In First Thessalonians 4, is that making a reference to a rapture, Pastor? Well, those people who aren't dead experience an ascension similar to Jesus in Acts chapter one. Please provide clarity. Another parent asked it this way, and it's a parent question. As a parent, one of my greatest fears is that the rapture will happen and my entire family will be gone and my two-year-old daughter will be left behind. Will she be raptured? I love that you use the left behind language there because it's very clearly influenced by it. The Tim LaHaye left behind series. Exactly. In the 70s, it was the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And then in the modern era, it's by Jenkins and LaHaye, the Left Behind series, really colored our eschatology. We say this all the time we get to Christmas, Jeremy, you know how we'll see nativity scenes all over the Metroplex and they're all influenced by Christmas cards. Right. Because who's there? Who's at the nativity scene? The wise men. The wise men. Are kneeling at the manger. And the wise men were not in the Christmas story. The wise men were in the toddler Jesus story. Correct. It's a very different story. It's the only toddler Jesus story. Yeah. It has the wise men in it, maybe two-year-old Jesus being told to flee to Egypt, you know, Joseph, you'll get to Egypt. They're going to try to kill the child and yeah. the Magi come. And if you would certify him as a king and give him the wealth, be able to live his life on the run yeah. until he can settle in Nazareth, the family can settle in Nazareth. So the rapture kind of sets itself up as this home alone meets left behind series. <laughs> you imagine the parents are all gone and you've leaving your child who's not born again at home. Yeah. And does it matter whether they've reached the age of accountability, whatever that might be? Yeah, which as a side note is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. So how do we know what that age of accountability is? Will they be left behind? Will they be taken? And you can understand why a parent would be incredibly concerned about this type of theology. So all of the rapture conversations have to go to 1 Thessalonians 4. It is the passage in the Bible and the only one that talks about this. Yeah. 
And so to understand what's happening in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have to understand that Paul is answering a question that the Thessalonian Christians have asked. These European Christians, by the way, this is one of the earlier written books. So, you know, Christ has died, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven. The apostles are spreading the gospel. Paul's gone over into Europe now. There's a church planted here in Thessalonica, and Paul has taught them about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And obviously, they were taught the line in the Apostles' Creed. I mean, it wasn't written this early, but the teaching in the Creed is, we believe Jesus will come again. Which is a good teaching. That we all agree on. Yeah. And so they were taught that. So their question to Paul was not about the rapture, because that's not really the teaching here. Their question was, what about our loved ones who died? Because we're still generationally very close to Jesus' death. And so they're all looking for the return of the Lord as imminent in the first century. Exactly. And they're like, listen, with every week that goes by, some of our loved ones are dying. And we want to know when Jesus returns, or do they somehow miss out on his earthly reign? Right. Whatever you, you want to call it. You this. would hate for Jesus to be crucified, my loved ones dying the week after, and then Jesus coming back three weeks after that. It's like, what about him? They're going to miss out on everything. He's going to miss out. It was just a month later. You know, they're expecting right. that Jesus is going to come back anytime. And so the, the first Thessalonians passage is written to encourage these European believers that their loved ones are not going to miss out on anything. And they don't have to be sorrowful or upset or anxious about whether their loved ones are going to be a part of the future reign of Christ on this earth. And so Paul goes on to tell them, don't grieve like those who have no hope. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, which is a great New Testament way of talking about believers who've died. We believe that when Jesus returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. So what he's talking about is they're going to get a resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's saying to the Thessalonian believers, no, don't be discouraged. Don't be sorrowful. Listen, if the Lord comes, he will resurrect your loved ones. And the fact that you're alive here on the earth, you're not preventing them from enjoying the kingdom of God, they're going to get a resurrection and you're going to get a transformation. And I think the thing that confuses us is the one line in there caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the clouds in In the the air. Yeah. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now it doesn't say so shall we ever be in the clouds. No. So shall we ever be with the Lord because the Lord's not riding a cloud for the rest of eternity. Right. It's a very platonic Sistine Chapel-ish type of painting you have in our minds but that we're floating because, on the clouds. It's because we have that mental image of what heaven is, that heaven is just, you know, we're floating on clouds forever, that yeah. then we took that improper understanding of heaven and put it onto these verses. And so what Paul's doing is Paul is giving comfort to the Thessalonians, and the way he does it is from his Old Testament, from his Bible. When I say Old Testament, he only had one testament. Yeah. So when Paul wants to comfort them, Paul starts quoting of the Bible. Now, Paul, in his, I guess, intellect and brilliance and inspiration, whatever you want to say, Paul has so much information up there in his brain that sometimes he'll mix his metaphors. Mm-hmm. He'll take a few words from one passage that he has in his heart and head, a few words from another passage, some cultural application, some apocalyptic literature, and he'll jam it all together and lay it down as what you know, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Yeah. And so when you're reading things about rising, going out to meet, forever with the Lord, caught up in the clouds, you're reading all of these statements. All of these statements come out of Scripture. And so what Paul's done is he's basically given you a collage where he's taking snippets of Scripture and compacting it all together and trying to give them a word picture not to be upset about the coming of the Lord. Because your loved ones are going to be united with you. This to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement, right. not a scary thing. Yeah, reminds you of God's faithfulness in the past, and he will continue to be so. And so now. what we've done in error is we've created this fantasy rapture that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Driverless cars. Oh, it, it is an actual horror film. Pilotless planes yeah. falling from the sky. My baby's missing from their crib. My wife just disappeared. My child's home alone. Right. We've envisioned it to be something that Paul was not saying. Paul's saying that Jesus Christ is going to return 
And when he does, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, a resurrection of the living. Let me say that a different way. You can use the word transformation of the living, but let's just say resurrection to be consistent. It's not that we're dead need to be resurrected, but we get a new body. You get transformed somehow. Yeah. The earth gets a renewal and the Lord comes to rule and reign in a new united new heaven and new earth. Now that's what we believe. Yeah. And obviously that differs from pre-trib premillennialism, which has a ton of moving parts. Mm -hmm. We go, Jesus comes, but he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He said, we fly up, we fly away to heaven. Then it's hell on earth for seven years. And then there's some resurrections maybe in there as well for people that are dying during the tribulation. And then Jesus comes again which would be like the third coming of Christ yeah. to fight the battle of Armageddon. And then he rules for a thousand years. And then, oh, wait, they let Satan out of the bottomless pit. And then there's another epic battle. And then the final judgment, great what? And then the new heaven, new earth. There's a lot of moving parts yeah. in premillennialism. What Paul has simply done is Paul, in trying to comfort the Thessalonian believers, has quoted Exodus 19 and Psalms 47 and Daniel 7 all together in one statement. Now, Exodus 19 says this, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So you have that, that cloud imagery. You've got the trumpet. Trumpet sounding. Yeah. And what's happening in Exodus 19? Moses is standing on Mount Sinai and the children of Israel are gathered at the base. They've just been delivered from Egypt. They are free people now. God's going to give the Ten Commandments in the next chapter, Mm. 20. Yeah. And God has told them, I'm going to come down upon Mount Sinai and I'm going to speak to you audibly in front of all the people. I'm going to talk to the whole people. Right. You know, it's one of those moments where you're like, man, I wish I could hear God speak audibly like Moses did. He did it in Exodus 19. And when he did it, it terrified the people so bad, they ran to their tents and said, Moses, you talk to God, but leave us out of it. We're scared to death. Yeah. And why are they scared? Because of the cloud descending, the lightning flashing, the loud trumpet sounding, all of these sensory uh, overloads. Uh, you know? Overload yeah. of God is revealing himself. Mm-hmm. And what does it look like? Clouds, trumpets, smoke, fire, earthquake, lightning. These are common symbols that you'll hear in this God revealing himself moment. Yeah. So let me go down to Psalms 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy for the Lord. Most high is awesome. The great king over the earth. God has ascended. Ascended where? To the throne. Not to heaven. To the throne. Okay. Now let's just keep it in context. He has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Trumpets again. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. You can see now Paul knows these passages. Mm -hmm. So he's going to take cloud and trumpet. He's going to take seated on the throne of glory. King, King, King is what's said all over Psalm 47. Yeah. It's a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm you sing when you go up to the temple to worship. Right. He's taken this big worship song, this God manifesting himself moment on Sinai, and now he combines it with another apocalyptic writing from Daniel chapter 7. Let me read. Daniel 7, 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now there's the kingdom, the coming kingdom being talked about. And you'll notice that the kingdom is not just given to the Lord. Yeah. It's delivered to his people. Now this is New Testament language. See, Paul and Peter and John, the New Testament writers knew these passages. And so they're saying, here's what Jesus taught us. He rules and we rule with him. There are passages like, if you suffer with him, you will rule with him. Yeah, right. So we're constantly being pulled up to those thrones. If it's just imagery, I'm not saying it has to be literally, but you have this position of authority, much the way Adam and Eve had this position of ruling over the creation in Genesis chapter one, two, and the beginning of three. Yeah. He said, this is your divine vocation. You are my living images. I want you to rule over planet earth have dominion and let everything multiply. This is your vocation. We're going to go back to that in some way. Yeah. So now Paul has taken these images, 
compacted them all together and said, let me make a statement to the Thessalonians that will bring you comfort. God will come on the clouds. There will be trumpets sounding. The dead in Christ will rise because the people of God are going to rule and reign and be exalted with Christ. And in the same way that he used that language, imagery, and even call back to Old Testament text as an encouragement to the church there, we can be encouraged in the same way. We can read these things and not be scared of what's to come. We don't have to be worried about the end times. We don't have to worry about those things, even where we differ, because we know that Jesus is coming back, and that is what the creed affirms. That is what the creed affirms. There's one more twist on the First Thessalonians passage, and that's what did the world look like in the first century when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians? Thessalonica was a colony of Rome. It's an outpost of the Roman Empire, a mm-hmm. nice-sized city. And Paul is saying to them, no, the King Jesus is coming. He's going to make it all right. Yeah. And he describes it in language they would understand. We're confused 2,000 years later. The Thessalonians were not confused when they read this. That's what I want to say emphatically. The Thessalonians, when they received this letter, were not saying, oh my goodness, is Paul describing a rapture? No, they knew that Paul was describing the arrival of a king. Mm -hmm. Paul is not saying you're leaving planet Earth and going away to heaven for any period of time. What Paul's saying is, be comforted, which you just articulated. The king is coming. The king is coming. Okay. So what would it look like if the king came to Thessalonica in the first century when Paul wrote this? Their king would have been Caesar. Mm-hmm. And a Caesar is a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. If great and mighty Caesar arrives at humble Thessalonica, the outpost of the Roman Empire, what would the citizens of Thessalonica do to welcome Caesar into their community? It's very easy because this is what you see all over the Bible. You even see it with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. It's very clear what would happen. Their culture would not sit back in the city and say, okay, Caesar's going to arrive here in about 30 minutes. Let's all just wait in our homes and let him get into the city. And then we'll all run out and say, surprise. (laughs) That's not the way it would work. What they would do in their culture when you knew a dignitary of this magnitude was coming, especially a king is the people would dress in their very best. They would go out of the city into the open space outside the city, beyond the wall. Yeah, They would line both sides of the highway, much of the way you would think of Palm Sunday now in your mind. You have right. this picture. It's the same way in which I've seen Facebook photographs when the famous soldier from Texas was murdered, Chris Kyle. You may remember this. Yeah. There were photographs of his funeral procession as it traveled through the state of Texas, there were tens and tens of thousands of people who lined the interstate system Mm -hmm. in Texas. And they showed pictures of people on overpasses, people lining the streets, waving flags as his funeral procession made its way through. He was that beloved of a native son of Texas and a hero to us that the people went out to line the streets and say to his family, his survivors, this is how much we respect and love your loved one who gave his life for our country. So imagine now Caesar arrives in Thessalonica, the people line the streets, wearing their best, waving flags, waving palm branches, you know, Mm -hmm. cheering, trumpets are sounding, the band is playing, there are streamers. This is what's being described. The people go out of the city to meet Caesar. They don't run away with Caesar back to Rome. They welcome Caesar into the city. So when Paul's describing 1 Thessalonians 4, it's not a rapture in the sense that we're leaving to go to heaven. Yeah. If we are literally caught up, and I'm not sure we will be, but if we literally leave planet Earth, it's only to go up into the clouds to line the streets. Mm-hmm. I know there are no streets in the clouds, but this yeah. is what's being described. Yeah. We're going to line the way with shouts and fanfare and trumpet blasts and banners waving to say, Here comes our king. We are now, the Bible says, when you see him, you will be like he is. We are in resurrected bodies now, glorified, incorruptible. And here comes our king. We go out to welcome him and bring him back to earth, not fly away to heaven. Wow, yeah. So is 1 Thessalonians 4 describing a rapture? Not the one you've been taught. Yeah. If it is, it means you're only going up to welcome Jesus and you make a quick U-turn and immediately bring him into the city where he sits on the throne. 
and is crowned king of our city, if you would. That's yeah. the metaphor that Paul's using. Right. Now, he takes those passages and that cultural understanding to tell us, hey, I know there's a COVID outbreak. I know there's uncertainty. I know that we're watching the news and seeing the warfare and the persecution of Christians around the world. We're seeing some troubling things from the Middle East. I know your anxiety is ratcheted very high. Yeah. Don't fret. It's all under control. Jesus is going to return. As we've said, we've had to do a few funerals lately. It's a comforting passage. Don't weep as those who have no hope. We have a lot of hope. Why? Our loved ones will rise mm -hmm. in the resurrection and we will be reunited and we will bring the king right back down to the earth yeah. and we will rule and reign with him in this planet. Now that's the passage Yeah. and it doesn't describe a traditional exit. It's actually a glorious entry into the world. Yeah. So what you need to see from this passage is if we understand the context Paul's in first century talking about the arrival of a king. Mm -hmm. He's quoting his Old Testament. If you were taught how to read the Bible, you would be taught, see, watch how Paul's quoting these three Old Testament books, how he's taken an allusion to an arriving king. He's put it together. He's not making a wild claim that we're all flying off of planet Earth. Right. He's just making a simple claim that the dead in Christ will rise. We will rise and be changed and that we will usher the Lord right down to planet Earth to receive his throne, if you will, yeah. to rule and reign. So therefore, encourage one another, another with these words. Absolutely. So now that's genre matters. And we'll talk a little more about genre this week and in the coming weeks. But being well-versed in what style of writing you're reading yeah. makes a difference. It makes a difference. One of the best ways that I learn is by a little bit of repetition. So I'm really thankful that we have this podcast available to us so that even just being able to talk through it again, it's really helpful for me. And so I know it's helpful for our listeners as they hear it and they Here's some of the content that we've talked about on Sundays, you know, in a little bit further depth and understanding. And as you've been listening and as you've been learning and studying on your own, I'm sure that there have been lots of questions that have come up. We take all of those questions and we make sure that we try our best to respond to as many of them as we can in the content that we deliver here in these podcast episodes. So if you have any questions or feedback that you'd like to give us, you can text those to 817-809-3040. Again, all of these podcasts and all of our Sunday morning sermons are available on our website at cbc.family media, as well as on all of the major podcast providers. You know, as you listen, if you're listening from far away and you'd like a way to support the ministry of Cornerstone Conversations, we would be so appreciative of you taking a part in that. If you'd like to give a financial contribution, you can do that by texting your amount with the word podcast to 84321. So if you're giving $10, it would be 10 podcast to 84321. That'll be distributed directly to the Cornerstone Conversations Fund so that we can continue to bring this content to you on a weekly basis. Again, we're so thankful for all of our listeners. We're so thankful for our Cornerstone family, and we're so thankful for the opportunity to continue in these Cornerstone Conversations together.